This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 25th of October, 2017. The topic is Attention Deficit Disorder in Adults, A Tale of Comorbidities. On the panel we have Dr. Hugh Morgan, Director and Psychiatrist at Mindcare Centre and Clinical Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney. Dr. Liz Shepard, Clinical Psychologist and Mark Brantman, Educational Consultant ADHD coach and mentor. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. What do we know about the epidemiology of ADD through the lifespan and the different ages? And is it different also in terms of presentation? Does it change form or shape or does it stay similar? Yeah, so um, ADHD is a neurobiological condition. You're, you're born with ADHD. And probably the, the estimates in epidemiological surveys vary, but um, conservatively, perhaps um, up to five to six percent of children um, may have ADHD, and perhaps two to four percent of adults may have ADHD. And I intimated earlier that um, probably some you know, 70 to 80 percent of those children and adolescents continue on into adulthood to have ADHD. Um, the symptoms do change a little bit. So um, children may um, present with both inattentive um, and hyperactive symptoms. And generally, towards the end of adolescence, the hyperactivity tends to diminish. So for a lot of people, their idea of what ADHD is like um, is different um, in adults. So it, it's, it's you know, not nearly as common. That hyperactivity may be expressed perhaps more as restlessness. So adults may have a lot of problems sitting still, say going to a movie or sitting in front of the television um, or having trouble waiting in a queue or, um, or getting impatient, you know, driving in traffic. Um, but they're not, you know, perhaps like the stereotypical idea of a child in a classroom, you know, clambering in and out of their chair and, you know, getting up and down. Um, the, the other thing I think that's interesting is that um, ADHD is, in, it, there are many overlaps, if you like, in terms of symptoms that people share, but it's very individual. So you might take, say, a child who's in primary school who's very, very bright um, and that is actually doing very well, but chatting to their friends and distracting everybody else. Um, and so it's interesting when you look at school reports, I sometimes see adults, and I've been lucky, where they've brought in their school reports. And what is amazing is that year after year, the same comments are there. Hugh is delightful, but he talks too much. If Hugh you know, did his homework, he would do so much better. Disappointing result for Hugh. Um, and you can see there are these consistent comments year after year. Um, the, the thing that is intriguing is that often I guess teachers don't see this pattern and they don't actually address it and, and do something about it. And I'm not sure whether that's because that's just routine, that teachers don't look back um, at the past. And for that matter, I guess parents often don't recognise it. So much so that sometimes people will say, oh, look, I, I think my reports were fine. And they get shocked, actually, when they look back and go, oh, I, didn't, I don't remember this, I don't remember these comments. So the transitions are interesting. Um, so sometimes children may do well until you know, primary school, or then the transition from where there's structure with one teacher to going into high school where there are eight classrooms and you've got to be organised, that can be difficult. For some children, they're still bright, or the, the structure of the school is good, or their parents are kind of you know, giving them scaffolding at home. 
they may be okay until they get to year 10 or 11, but then the transition going into year 11, the demands become higher. If you look at adults in the workplace, um, it might be that somebody might be managing okay, but then they're promoted and suddenly they've got to be more, more organised. So it's an interaction, if you like, between a person's ADHD symptoms and their environment. So following on from that, Mark, um, you clearly had many years where you would have had ADHD but not diagnosed, so you were experiencing the traits mm. that are um, correlated with the condition. What was that like for you, having those traits but not knowing why, not having an explanation, and what was the impact of that for you? Um, look, the first book written by females, uh, on, from a female perspective of this uh, condition was called You Mean I'm Not Lazy, Crazy or Stupid, right? And I think that probably sums up my feeling about that. Um, uh, you know, uh, I just put those, like, and, and follow on what something like Hugh said, uh, you know, teachers look at it, these, these, these uh, symptoms, but they see them as a poor behaviour. So uh, the theme of could do better really rings out in reports. So it was always difficult, but I just put it down to that I, you know, I wasn't very clever and uh, uh, perhaps you know, I needed to try harder and uh, we're an English colony, so we have lots of words for lazy, so I, I probably fitted all those. And uh, certainly verbally impulsive and very mature in high school. Um, and so it was a struggle. And, uh, but I always wondered why I couldn't do it but I found the diagnosis fabulous. But I knew 25 years ago um, when my son was diagnosed, and, uh, but I couldn't get anybody to diagnose, uh, couldn't treat me then, because it was the feeling that adults didn't have it. And even though the psychiatrist I went to at the time actually uh, knew my wife in a professional setting, uh, said, you can't have ADHD. Uh, and I said, well, I have two sons, and you know my wife, it's definitely not her, but he was, well, adults don't have it. And he was a very clever fellow. So it was a struggle, so it was good to find out anyway. Um, but of course, as I mentioned before, diagnosis is a powerful word, so there was a long period of the life lost. You know, what could have my life been? But I, I don't feel that way today, but I, I certainly did initially. What areas of your life did you feel most impacted, like for you? Well, learning, you know, like it took me forever to do things. Um, you know, um, I think uh, now I know about the you know, whole prefrontal cortex and and that kind of thing. It was interesting because I started university and I did two years, but I it was bored. So three years in the military certainly helped me uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but you know, I guess that was going. So it, it seemed to get a lot easier after year nine. School was there was a spurt. You know, year ten I was really quite good and I did really well in year eleven. But then after that I was over it. I just was anxious, probably anxious too, but just over school. And so getting into university was somewhat of a miracle, according to my mother. And um, I did two years and that was boring. I couldn't stand it, you know, like, I couldn't. Uh, and I had to put in all my own organisation things. At university, you know, years three, six and nine are where children stand out the most because the tasks become more complicated, right? But at university, when you've you got no structure and you've got to put it in yourself and you can't do that. So I think that was the reason. Uh, I, found, I found it really difficult, to be honest. Mm. And Liz, um, what would bring an adult who has attention deficit disorder to a clinician, what would make them come and seek mm. help, do you think? Yeah, well look, some of the reasons um, why somebody might come to me is they've been struggling, they've been on Struggle Street for a while, and the primary symptoms they might be coming to see someone like me for, like I said before, might be depression, um, low mood, <coughs> anxiety. Um, and then when we start to look at that, there's the feelings of failure. 
and then when we start to look at that, there's self, there might be the self-esteem issues that have been impacted, and we drill down into that, and we, you know, uh, start to look for some of those, um, look at the the pattern, whether this has been a lifelong pattern or struggle when the depression first started. Um, and often we will come to the realisation that there has been a, a long, lifelong pattern of struggle uh, for that person with those core characteristics or symptoms and the way it plays out in the context of their lives. So I suppose they're the three things that I would look for is symptoms, person, how it affects that person in their context, in how they live their lives. And that can play out very differently for people based on some of the things that um, uh, Hugh and Mark have mentioned, you know, where there is scaffolding and structure, people can sort of get away with it for a bit longer perhaps and perform quite well. I had one young man who came to me for um, really severe anxiety and sort of looked like perfectionistic kind of paralysis with depression, a lot of anxiety about uni and work, had been a really high performer. First year of uni, everything sort of collapsed and his mood went down because he had a real, really strong sense of self tied in with his achievements, but he was struggling. And again, that's maybe another myth or perception. He said to me, but I've done so well. I thought, you know, I, I couldn't have ADHD because, you know, I've done well in school. And it was a very, very much a revelation to him to realise with confirmation from a psychiatrist that he, he did in fact have it, and the very points that have been made, there wasn't that structure, there wasn't that scaffolding in place. So left to his own devices, uh, he was um, in trouble. And Liz, what have you made, as you're saying, you know, people may well present with depression. Yeah. What have you made of the connection between depression and ADHD? What's your understanding uh, of that? Professionally, uh, very much so. I'd say there's a, a very strong link between having um, underlying ADHD that hasn't been picked up early and addressed in the school system. And so people are, are supported and helped to achieve to their ability uh, and not feel lazy, not feel stupid. So to protect self-esteem and self-worth and to achieve. Um, when that hasn't been identified or addressed early on, we're picking up adults at the other end where that damage has been done. Um, to self-esteem and, and hence depression functioning. It becomes a functional illness. People can't function in the world and achieve the things they want to achieve. And so, Hugh, just staying with comorbidities for a while, how common are comorbidities with ADHD and, and what would be the most common comorbidities that people may experience? Yeah, um, so comorbidity is common and people would typically present <coughs> with ADHD and, you know, something else. Uh, rather than just coming and, and having straight um, ADHD. So the, the depression is common, probably 20 to 30% of people with ADHD are depressed. Um, social anxiety um, is common as well. Social anxiety I find very interesting is in that if I always remember one, one girl who talked about how she would sort of approach her group of friends and, and, and start to you know, try and interact and talk and she was not really listening and so she blurt something out or, or add something, and they just laugh. They, they, you know, they loved her, but you know, so, so she, she always felt quite anxious about, am I going to interrupt? Am I going to say the wrong thing? Forget this person's name. Forget where we're up to. And interestingly, with treating her ADHD, her social anxiety improved because 
she was actually focused, she was attending, she was picking things up. So sometimes some of the comorbid uh, anxiety or depression can actually be treated really by treating the primary condition. So it's very interesting listening to people, you know, when they come, if they're anxious, they're depressed. Um, other comorbid conditions um, include um, Asperger's syndrome, which is interesting too, and that, that can become, you know, complicated trying to separate that. Substance use problems are common. So um, young people, I think uh, it's about, they're more likely to start smoking something like two years earlier compared to their peers. So some of this is to do with risk taking. It's just that people are more inclined to take risks and to, you know, to do things. Um, so they're more prone, I guess, to you know, developing substance use problems like um, alcohol and, and other drugs. It's very common people smoke marijuana and often they seem to be doing this because they have trouble getting off to sleep. So it's very common, something like 80% of people with ADHD have a delayed sleep phase problem. So they have trouble, they, just, they cannot switch their mind off, cannot get to sleep. And then this can become compounded because they may then start to develop patterns where they feel, well, look, I concentrate better at night. And I guess that's not, you know, that's probably true to some extent because they're less likely to be distracted, it's quieter. But then that, of course, can compound and make things worse in terms of sleep. Um, so often people with ADHD have terrible trouble getting up in the morning. That can then be problematic because then they may be late for work, late for school, then they get into trouble. And so there's this horrible, vicious circle of, of low self-esteem. Learning disorders are common too, so it's common for kids with ADHD who may also have a learning disorder. You can certainly have a learning disorder without having ADHD. Um, bipolar disorder, um, it's thought that probably 20% of people with bipolar disorder may have ADHD and about 20% of people with ADHD may have bipolar disorder. Um, and that's, that's interesting as well. PTSD is more common in people with ADHD. Why is that, do you think? More risk taking, more accidents. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So that that can be yeah be a problem too. Um, there was a, an enormous survey done in Denmark where they looked at something like two million people in the population, and um, and what they found was that the mortality rates for people with ADHD, excluding everything else, so removing all the other confounding um, variables, people's mortality was double compared to people who don't have ADHD. Why was that? Because of accidents. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, I think it's a, it's a very real condition. And I guess one, this is perhaps a bit simplistic, but the way I like to think about it, it's like people being left-handed. You know, nobody would say, oh, it doesn't exist. You know, people, people are left-handed. They can try and write with their right hand, um, but it doesn't really feel comfortable. And, you know, perhaps there's about 5% of the population um, who are left-handed. And they may, some of those people may be ambidextrous, so it may be, or they may be really, you know, very much, look, I'm, I'm left-handed. And I think that that's how I like to think about people with ADHD. It's, this is on a spectrum. Um, so people have, may, may have mild to moderate to really quite severe symptoms. Um, and, and what is interesting too is genetically, it's as, high, it's as heritable as height. So it's a highly heritable condition. And it really does come in families. It's kind of, so it's very, very classic that you know, you'll have a child, um, or, to, or for me, in terms of the way people present, um, a common um, thing is a, a paediatrician who is treating um, their, their, a child and a mother or, or father comes to, you know, to have treatment. Um, it's common that um, a, a person who had been treated as a child adolescent at school, their paediatrician stops their treatment at the end of their HSC and then they find they're floundering and they come back and they want treatment. 
Um, and I also do see adults, like Liz was talking about, who present, they've come to see me for treatment of depression and anxiety, and we screen everybody um, for ADHD. And you find, well, actually, I think you've got this too. And they go, what? I mean, you know, I've, done, I've never thought I had this. And, um, and so that, and, and that, that really may make a big difference in terms of that person recovering. They may have been really struggling um, to, you know, to deal with um, chronic depression, anxiety, and their underlying ADHD hadn't been treated. So it's, it's a very interesting condition, I think, and, and, quite, and really rewarding to treat because people do well with treatment. You know, it's a very expensive process if you're an adult because there's no private, there's no public services and you have to pay for the medicine. And according to the federal government, once you turn 18, you're not eligible for PBS medications. So it's very expensive to purchase your medication. Um, it's an inequity, which PBAC, I suppose, is, you know, it's a, bit a funding issue, obviously, but um, adults with ADHD forget to take their medicine as well. So there's a lot of things that are irritable, but the diagnosis rate is the most appalling. You know, if you have a population of 5% with less than 1% diagnosed, the economic cost to the country, let alone to the individual, is huge. And, but there's a lot of people out there really struggling. So I think anxiety is what leads, partly what leads to depression. I don't, I'm not sure, you know, you can have that as well. But if you're constantly overwhelmed, if you have to work 10 times harder to concentrate even on a pleasurable activity. And Liz, um, so it sounds like presentations can be complex. How do you in your practice go about diagnosing or screening for ADHD? What are the things you look sure. for or what tools do you use? Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, I would always obviously screen for, we look at the presenting symptoms um, and I would do an ADHD screener. Um, and not just rely on a, a screener is just that, it's a screener, but then um, back that up with more of a clinical interview. And we look at things like what the pattern has been over somebody's lifetime, uh, what things have caused problems or stress uh, within the context of that person's life, their learning, their schooling, interactions socially. So it's really, um, we can do the screeners, um, but it's got to be backed up with a thorough clinical assessment and look at um, how those ADHD symptoms have impacted on that person over their lifetime. Um, so you can use the DSM-5 uh, criteria or a screener such as uh, the adult ADHD self-report scale. Um, there's a few out there, but I would tend to use the DSM-5 criteria and then just sort of have a look at how that, that's playing out in the person's life. Um, uh, and then I suppose from there, um, we're going to drill into more questions around functioning um, and what factors uh, around those characteristics would cause more anxiety or depression, so the impact on self-esteem, things like that. Um, so, for example, a lot of people will, if they're talking about feeling very, very overwhelmed and very, very anxious, we all know what situations create that anxiety. Um, is it social interactions or is it more academic or is it um, about getting things like getting to work on time, day-to-day -day functioning? Uh, what's the impact on day-to-day -day functioning? Where is the struggle? Um, uh, sometimes people might be functioning quite well in one domain of their life, uh, but it's another area of their life where maybe they're struggling more because there's not the supports in place. Here we printed out the screening tool mm. that you sent along oh, to me. Can you speak a bit how you might use that in yeah. a practice setting? So the um, sc screening questionnaire that Liz um, has got there is the one that 
I, I gave to Viridin. And so it's, a, it's the WHO, or World Health Organization, um, ADHD screener. And it was actually designed for general practice. And so I would encourage you to, you know, to use it if you haven't um, in those people where you feel, hmm, you know, I wonder whether, could this person have ADHD? Um, or if you're perhaps dealing with somebody who um, has been depressed and, or anxious and they don't seem to be responding as you would have expected them to do. And I guess for those adults who you're thinking, could this person have ADHD, um, if they are you know, chronically late um, for appointments, so that, that's kind of in relation to you know, being a bit disorganised, um, if their spouse or partner is frustrated um, with them, I think it's a, it, that can actually be um, a very common presenting problem. You know, the, I guess it's not uncommon that I've had people come to me um, and it's all a bit too late. And you know, the spouse is saying, that's it, you sort him out, Hugh, I've had enough um, and it's all over. Um, and it's all a bit sad because it, perhaps if this had been addressed you know, five or 10 years before, then things may have been different. So I guess a partner will often complain like this person you know, is like another child in the family. Um, I'm always responsible for organising. And it's, I think it, this is a bit um, of a cliche, but I think that it it's, seems to be not an uncommon pairing where um, that one, a partner may sort of be the one who is the organiser. And I guess that's kind of normal in any you know, partner, you know, partnership, really. Um, but that can sometimes get a bit wearing um, when you know, the, the spouse just seems to be responsible for everything and, and that can lead to tension and, and people get sick of it. Um, so it, the, that screener questionnaire, I think, is useful for you to do that. And if you found, look, that you get a positive result, it's very, very simple to score. The instructions are there. Um, then the next step is looking at referring um, to you know, the psychiatrists that you know um, in, in your area um, to treat ADHD. And I guess what I'm hoping is that the more that GPs are aware of ADHD, then the more of my colleagues are going to start to become more aware and more comfortable with assessing and diagnosing and treating ADHD. That's already starting to happen. Um, and that's, you know, which is a good thing. Um, you know, I think 10 years ago, uh, there were really very few psychiatrists, and for that matter, psychologists and social workers and other allied health people who were, were not very familiar with adults having ADHD. So I think it's just slowly, slowly changing. So the more awareness that you have um, and the more that, that this is communicated, then I think that will encourage more um, of my colleagues, psychiatrists and psychologists and others, um, to, you know, to start actively being involved in treating people. Our first question from the audience tonight. How is it possible for people who have untreated ADHD to achieve things like university degrees or PhDs? So the, I guess the nature of, of my, the bias of my practice, I see lots of university students, medical students, you know, law students. It, so ADHD um, affects you. It doesn't matter where you are on the bell curve of IQ. So you can be very, very bright. Um, I see barristers, I see, you know, people. And so the, the typical, like a, a, a barrister who um, is excellent as a barrister, but hopeless with billing. Um, so his wife is just absolutely pulling her hair out. He's just, he's absolutely disorganised. Um, and what he does, he leaves everything to the last minute. He just, it's when, you know, the, it's, the anxiety builds um, and he will just read his brief, you know, literally an hour before they're walking into court does beautifully, okay, it works. But you know, that, that's, that, that's him. 
Um, medical students, um, yes, you can be really bright, but it can be incredibly effortful. And I guess what happens is they start failing um, and you know, getting into strife, they get depressed, they get anxious. Um, so the, yeah, the, there's, I guess that's, there's a bit of a myth um, that you know, if you're bright, you, you, you can't possibly have ADHD. Um, and what you find is that people have been taking a lot longer to do their degree. So you're quite right, people can get through and they do. Um, and you see adults, so you know, their degree should have taken four years and instead it took them six. Um, and you know, so it, it's, you see these people have really, really struggled. It's just, it's been so much more effortful than it should be. And they can see, you know, why is it that their friends can you know, manage this and, and do this? And it's so much easier for them. Why is it that they're having so much trouble? Um, it's, yeah, so, so it's interesting. And, and I think once people ha start having treatment, a lot of people do feel, you know, why didn't I have this picked up earlier? Occasionally you have young you know, people who may have actually been assessed by a paediatrician and they were told they had ADHD, but their parents may say, oh, no, look, we'll, we'll, we'll try diets, we'll try fish oil, we'll try all these things, and, and they, don't, they don't get the treatment and then, you know, they, they have this treatment and, and they improve. Going on another tangent, what, what is very interesting is there's now more and more data that if you treat earlier, that may actually improve outcomes in children. So a lot of parents are worried about, oh, this could you know, do something to, to their child's brain. Well, yes, it might. In fact, it may actually improve neuronal connection and connectivity. It sort of makes sense. So if you're actually stimulating those regions of the brain and they're being used, you know, wire and fire, and they connect and, and go together. So it may actually um, increase the likelihood that their ADHD may improve and they may not need medication in adulthood. And I would concur with everything that's already been said. And as a sufferer myself and as a, a clinician, it's a great question because I think um, the belief can very much be, well, how can you possibly complete anything or achieve when you're afflicted? And that's the way I felt through high school. I, I, I had this sense that I was capable of more, but I couldn't unlock that. Um, and so I left things to last minute. It was the panic and the adrenaline that would get me over the line. You know, I'd almost rely on that to get things in, you know, so I could somehow summons the motivation to get it in and get it over the line and stop the procrastination and stop, um, you know, all the faffing around. I also grew up in a house that was incredibly disorganised because, remember, it is a genetic disorder. So my study uh, room was piled high with... Um, for a want of another word, crap. Uh, so I studied in my bed. Um, so a lot of the time I was studying, I was asleep because it's not really conducive to concentration and attention. So w essentially, um, my my um, start of my university career was was doomed, and I took a couple of years off to sort myself out, and came back with a, a renewed vigour and motivation that I was going to study psychology. Don't forget with ADHD, part of the assessment can be and should be, I think, about finding out what strengths are, what is good about having ADHD, believe it or not. And even in the learning context, and I'm working with a lot of students at the moment, you know, maybe you're not at your best in written exam form, but you know your staff, so is there a way you can present what you know orally? So it's about being using the, using the creativity and the strengths of somebody with ADHD in a way that's going to work best for them to showcase what they're capable of. Um, and maybe traditional methods of uh, learning and examination don't fit best with what 
uh, somebody with ADHD strengths naturally are. Could I just for a second, Hugh, could you broaden out for the people in the audience who aren't that familiar with short-acting, long-acting medications, just talk a little bit about the medications sure. and their use? Yeah. Okay, so the um, standard uh, stimulant medications that are available are dexamphetamine, um, which is a five milligram tablet that's about 50 years old now, it's been around for a long time, um, and Ritalin or methylphenidate, which is a 10 milligram tablet. Both dexamphetamine and Ritalin last about four hours. So they're, they're short acting and typically people would need to take them at least three times a day. Um, in terms of long acting medication, uh, Long-acting medication is available on authority on the PBS for people who've been diagnosed with ADHD between the ages of 6 and 18. So if you happen to come and see me and you're 20 um, and you've not seen anybody before, not had a diagnosis, even though you've got exactly the same condition, you're not eligible for, on the PBS. So you can get those scripts on authority, or rather as a private script, but say the cost for Concerta 54 milligrams might be about $65 a month on a private script. Um, and for some people, they can afford that. If you have private health cover, some health funds will refund on that. Um, the long-acting version of, um, of dexamphetamine, there's a, a newer medication called Vyvanse or Listexamphetamine, and it, it's very expensive on a private script. It's about $113 a month. So it, it, it's probably this roughly, I guess, 50% of people seem to prefer and do better with methylphenidate, um, and 50% of people seem to prefer and do better with dexamphetamine. So it's a very idiosyncratic thing. It's probably a genetic thing. Um, and also, dose is not related to weight. So you could be you know, a, a 50 kilogram person and, and you need 60 milligrams of methylphenidate, you could be um, you know, 120 kilos and, you know, and need a smaller amount. So it's not, not a weight thing either with, with medication. So the long acting um, medications that are related to methylphenidate, Ritalin LA. Um, so Ritalin LA is kind of designed to mimic um, Ritalin uh, in that it sort of has, it's, Ritalin LA lasts about eight hours, and so it's, it would be like taking two lots of the short-acting medication. Concerta is a brand, um, and it's, it's another long-acting methylphenidate medication. It's designed to last about 12 to, or to 10 to 12 hours. There's a lot of variability um, between people, um, so even though they're designed to last that length of time, they may or may not, depending on the individual person. And then the long-acting um, dexamphetamine medication is Vyvanse or Listexamphetamine. There is also a non-stimulant medication available called Stratera, and Stratera is a um, noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. And for some people, that, that can work well, um, particularly if they can't tolerate stimulants. Probably 90% of people with ADHD respond very, very well um, to stimulant medication, but there are 10% of people who cannot tolerate it or it makes them anxious or it causes their heart rate to go up or, you know, for, or maybe other issues to tolerability. Um, for adults too, it's interesting, um, if you have more comorbid medical problems, then that can be important to, you know, to make sure, for example, if somebody had significant heart disease or I, I had a patient who'd had a stroke and had had a heart attack, um, and clearly I needed to talk to his neurologist and um, uh, cardiologist before you know, embarking on using stimulant medication. But for, even for people in that situation, if their conditions are stabilised, so their blood pressure is stable, um, you know, their heart is okay, um, they can still take stimulant medication. They're, they're, they're generally pretty well tolerated um, and safe medications. Another question from our audience. 
In terms of psychological therapies, what approach is recommended currently to help people with ADHD? Cognitive behavioural therapy uh, has a lot of merit with ADHD. Um, there's been some really good uh, trials done. Carolyn Stevenson did some work on her, um, her program. She's um, developed some self-help programs. I utilise a lot of those techniques. Um, and with ADHD, often the coaching and the one-to-one the, the -one work over a prolonged period of time, repeated sessions. I think her work was around eight-week trial and then follow-up at 12 months and a lot of the results were still holding, which is good. Self-help is harder for the, for the reason that, you know, motivating yourself to go work through it on your own and as opposed to working with someone like a coach, um, like a clinical psychologist who can almost be like your ADHD coach or, or someone else. Um, who has the understanding and the knowledge. So things like, you know, you break it down into the areas that affect the person the most through your assessment. So whether it's an issue with motivation or following through on things or organisational issues. Um, the behavioural part is really important. So with my man, for example, who lived on his own and we could do the cognitive part to the cows come home, it was not going to fix the issue of the situation that he was the, the impact of the ADHD on his life. So we had to be more creative in that sense and use the behavioural part of the CBT. Um, and it was really getting someone, I got a consultant who I work with to get in there. I did the assessment, took all the photos, looked at his you know, situation and got someone in there helping him reorganise, labelling, um, you know, helping him uh, to uh, work with a new system, filing organisation, um, things having a place, we lay, things had labels everywhere and we followed up and hit that system is still working. So things still go back where they belong, they have a place, he hasn't forgotten his keys, he hasn't forgotten his phone so far. Um, so that, that part is really, really important. Um, a lot of the work I'm doing as a clinical psychologist, we've, we've done a lot around um, planning and, you know, having structure. But a lot of the work, to be honest, I'm doing is on self-esteem for him at that stage of his life. We're dealing with the impact of ADHD on his whole life and regression, sense of loss and some really, to be honest, some grief work. Um, so, um, and changing some of the, the cognitive beliefs around what I'm not capable of or... Um, so, and that takes time because there's a whole lifetime of patterns of behaviour and thinking that's been reinforced by people in his life. So, so it's a lot of behavioural experiments to sort of do things, change things um, behaviourally, get him to help him to operate in a new and different way with encouragement and support, and then reality test it in terms of looking at the outcomes, and then that's the evidence to challenge some of those very persistent underlying negative beliefs about not being capable. If that does that make sense? So using those two things together works beautifully. Yeah. I'm something I'd say the MTA study, which is really old now. Okay, that, but that, and subsequent studies have shown that, that your, your first protocol is the stimulants. You're going to get further with that, right? And then multimodal treatment. It's what, the profession, what you see, you know? Like if they've got the diagnosis and they've got a, a literacy problem or a speech problem or they've got anxiety, you know, that's the call after that. But, you know, just using my son who was hyperactive in the womb, uh, who never crawled, he ran, 
we did all those therapies because of the things that, uh, uh, you know, and my wife worked with Chris Green at the time, you know, wrote books on this. And we got further in, in, in uh, 30 minutes with stimulant medication than we did with any other therapy we used. A question from our audience. Are there generally some careers that work better for people with ADHD? Depends on the type of ADHD. You see, if they're a combined type, they might have the hyperactivity. So, you know, you know, um, you know, risk-taking kind of active jobs, ER jobs, you know, like with action instant, that kind of thing. But if they're dreamy, that might not be good. You know, and locked in an office definitely wouldn't be good. Depends. And it depends on their age. You know, I don't think there is a perfect job. I mean, I, I, I was in the commandos and I was in the military and I love that. It's all go. But it was also very structured. So I guess if you're an asthma... Uh, exercise-induced asthmatic, you'd always carry a puffer, right? So if you've got a working memory problem, you've got to protect your memory. Um, and so if you're at uni, you'd do three subjects rather than four. You'd manage that a lot better. So it's just about a modification, isn't it? had a client the other day and she's panicking. She's got work due and she can't get anything done. And it's open plan petitions, a nightmare. Um, but so, again, a bit of that creative brainstorming around, well, there's some empty office meeting rooms that... Um, she could use for that quiet time to get something done, take a laptop, leave the office, go and sit in the park or go on. Um, so she's more distracted by the conversation, the noise in her workplace than she would be, say, in a, a coffee shop. Except that I'd say there's a big difference between somebody who's managed and somebody who's not, right? And adults within a very short period, life goes from ordinary to good very quickly. Within six months on the right medicine, boy, things are really getting traction, you know. Within 18 months, if you're on a, the correct long-acting medication, unless you've missed something or you haven't intervened in something, it should be better than that, those sort of things. I think ADHD um, medication is a bit like wearing glasses. Okay, if I take my glasses off, everybody's blurry. I take my medication, put my glasses on again, and, you know, and things are right. And I need to keep wearing my glasses. Um, I guess um, in terms of how people take their medication, it's really interesting, you know, listening to people, it varies. So some people may, look, I only like taking my medication during the week at work. I, I, I don't, don't want to take it on the weekends. And I guess it just depends. Um, it might be, yeah, it depends on, it's true, it depends on the partner, it depends on kind of how significant their ADHD is, um, you know, and, and it may keep evolving and changing over time. Sometimes people might use um, say 50 milligrams of Vyvanse during the week and 30 on the weekend, or they might only use short acting. I guess I, on the weekend, I always encourage people when they're driving to try and make a point of have, you know, that they've taken stimulant medication because there's quite good evidence that their risk of having an accident is decreased. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's very, it is a very individualised. I've only been once deliberately off medication because uh, my wife likes to lie on the beach and read books. So I just assumed it was my medication that did that. I'll never do that again because I've forgotten how bad it was to be constantly in your head with rubbish. Like I'd just forgotten, you know, like how could I possibly forget that? Rubbish, just white noise. And she said, you're hysterical, you're so funny. And I said, you mean funny, stupid or silly? She said, no, you're so entertaining, I couldn't stand it. Right, so I'd give, I'd give yeah. from a work point of view, I definitely have to take the medication for sure, but I don't think, and I think that's, I think there's, you've got to work through that view. That's where a psychologist come in on that one. Yeah. Why shouldn't your partner get the benefit of the medication? Yeah. You know, why shouldn't you be present on the weekend? Yeah. Why, why should they do all the organising, you know? It's a team effort, you know? Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. So, yeah. I don't know, it's just a, a point. Is there any me. neurobiological benefit of taking it consistently rather than erratically or not really? Like in those developmental... I think that in one area it would be with sleep. 
So paradoxically, you know, if, when people are taking stimulant medication consistently, it can often really improve their sleep-wake cycles. And I guess you know, the classic thing might be, I've seen somebody, they've been doing well, and they come back and see me six months later and say, oh, look, the medication's not working as well. Um, you know, and I said, oh, okay, well, let's have a look. And you know, let's have a look at your sleep. What time are you going to bed? Oh, midnight, 1 a.m.? Oh, um, what time are you getting up? You know, and so that you find that they've become sort of chronically sleep deprived. And if any of us are chronically sleep deprived, that impacts on your ability to focus and concentrate. And you know, so, um, so I, th I think neurologically that might be relevant. I, I don't know of any evidence you know, otherwise that would, you know, but I think it's perhaps just more, I guess, a habit, you know, so if you're, if you're taking that medication regularly, it probably is easier um, rather than taking it less regularly. And, and uh, depending on the age and the, of the person with this condition, um, after 21 days, generally that doesn't affect sleep, maybe little kids, but I've, have, I've accidentally taken a long-acting Ritalin 40 milligrams at 10 o'clock at night and had a perfect night's sleep. And maybe staying with neurobiology just for a minute, and then we'll go to you. Um, you mentioned, you alluded, I think both of you alluded earlier, that you know, some people think you know, ADHD is like not a real condition or not a real illness. Do we have a bit of an understanding of the neurobiology or what do we mm. know about the brain? Yep. Um, so the ADHD is probably one of the most researched um, psychiatric conditions, really, and there is an enormous... Um, evidence base. So there are certainly genetic studies that um, are indicating that, um, and, and family studies, that this is a, certainly a heritable disorder. Um, one of the um, psychiatrists um, here, actually attached to Prince of Wales Hospital, Flo Levy, is a professor of psychiatry and she's a leading academic researcher looking at the genetics of ADHD. Um, there's been a lot of um, work done in neuroimaging um, and you can see that um, children who have ADHD neurodevelopmentally are, th are three years behind in cognitive development. So not only are these kids you know, having difficulty because of their ADHD, but their brain, their growth, the growth of their neurocortex is actually delayed. Um, and it, it does catch up, um, but there may be actually you know, some sort of... You know, or some thinning in comparison to adults. So um, the, the other thing, I guess, is that ADHD is not confined just to the, the prefrontal cortex, but it's, it's, it's felt to be, con I guess, there are all sorts of areas of the brain. So it's more, I guess, about neural networks that are affected. Um, we know that, that dopamine is, is very important as a neurotransmitter um, and noradrenaline. So dopamine and noradrenaline play an important role, and that's why stimulant medication works, because in effect what that's doing is really normalising the levels of dopamine and noradrenaline. If you, if you think about an inverted U-shaped curve, um, I sort of am forever drawing an inverted U-shaped curve on my whiteboard and talking to people about trying to reach a, a point where um, they have the optimal benefit. And, and again, I use you know, the metaphor of kind of going and getting your glasses you know, tested with your opt optometrist, that you'll reach a point where the person gets optimal benefit with treatment where if they take a bit too much, people can become a bit hyper-focused and it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, and not taking enough, people are not sort of at that point where they feel um, motivated, ready to start things, stay on task, not get distracted. Um, so, so kind of tr you know, trying to sort of you know, optimise treatment is very important um, and individualising it. A question from our audience. Thinking about some of the side effects of taking medication for ADHD, 
Do we need to be concerned about the potential for increasing depression or even suicidality? But I, no, no, I don't find that in adults at all. The opposite. Mm. I would, I would the say opposite. I, I haven't seen any. The only issue I've seen with medication is where maybe somebody hasn't got that dosage right and it's making them a bit anxious um, and it's just about getting that, you know, working with their psychiatrist to get the right balance, but certainly not a worsening of depression. Or... And the final question for this evening from our audience. People are often on other medications for psychiatric conditions. Do we need to be worried about interactions between their medications? No, I think it, it just depends on the individual. And I guess what you try and do with anybody is try and rationalise their treatment. So, you know, somebody might have, say an adult might have been to another colleague and instead of getting a diagnosis of ADHD, they might get a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder. And then I see them and I think, well, look, I don't think you do. I could be wrong. Let's have a look at this and, um, and you might wean and you know, start, it would be okay to start them on a stimulant. Stimulant medication you know, is pretty good. It generally doesn't interact much um, with other psychotropic medication um, and is, is reasonably well tolerated. Uh, so I guess that, that's what I would be trying to do, is trying to rationalise medication. Sometimes people may have a comorbid condition and it's really logical and sensible to stay on it. So somebody might say, come and say, look, I've, I've been on this um, antidepressant for you know, five years, and, it, you know, and every time I've tried to stop, I, I just find I get depressed and anxious again. I'd probably, sure. <laughs> probably keep them on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and then you know, add, <clears throat> add something else. Occasionally, um, some people find that they can't tolerate stimulants. It might be that you know, I've had people who you know, found that their heart rate you know, goes up, they're tachycardic, and they just feel really uncomfortable. Or um, I have had some people where they just cannot sleep. They take stimulant medication and it really disrupts their sleep. So there are certainly people who can't tolerate them. And then I might try and look at alternatives um, you know, for them. And that might be Stratera. It might be um, trying other antidepressants. There's... Um, uh, bupropion or Zyban, which unfortunately in Australia is expensive, can be effective in those people who can't tolerate um, other treatment. Um, uh, Catapress or clonidine is actually helpful as well. And there's going to be a newer, um, similar alpha blocker um, that's coming onto the market called guanfacine, which is much better tolerated and has a much better side effect profile. Um, yeah. I was just going to add, like, if, uh, with clients who present with uh, drug or alcohol issues, I've had a few cases where um, someone's presented with um, depression, with cocaine addiction or, or other forms of addictions. Uh, and again, as a standard, I'd screen for ADHD because <coughs> it's self-medicating for something. Uh, and the effects, and look at what the effects of those drugs are on that person, what they get out of it, um, how they feel it helps them, whether it's if it helps them function or concentrate or feel calm or whatever it is. And, and in those cases, I've had a couple of clients with, who have had quite serious addictions. In the process of getting a proper diagnosis, it had to be managed quite carefully because of the drug history in introducing a stimulant. So in that case, I'd be definitely consulting or referring on to someone like you to get expert guidance on how to manage that. I often wonder if drug and alcohol counsellors are ever going to twig to the people that they're seeing. It would be a high percentage of ADHD people. Oh. They still have it, right? So I have a, lots of young people who go in to do psychology and say, oh, I'm going to work with ADHD adolescents, and then in that organisation cycle or something. But I have a young man who said, look, I think alcohol and drug, alcohol, they need more help. I said, oh, that's very good. You know, he's a really lovely fellow. And off he went and did a prank. And he said, you know, like, you know the expression you use? I feel like that every day. I said, what expression do I use? Well, if you only have a hammer, you only see nails, right? 
And he said, like nearly everybody I see, you clearly they got this and they've been treated and counselled for years, but they've still got the same problem. I think that just to tie into that thing too, that there's also a bit of a myth that we could all, you know, feel fabulous on stimulant medication, and um, and to, part of the problem is that to some degree that's true. Um, so you know, I like coffee. I drink probably four cups a day, but um, it 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 doesn't you know have the same. I guess the degree of effect um, that somebody has um, or has with stimulant medication has ADHD. So again, thinking about that inverted U-shaped curve, um, in fact, you know, if you're an adult who does not have ADHD, so if you think about it, 95% of the population do not have ADHD, you're already at the top of the curve. So if you add a stimulant medication, you, you may actually feel a bit edgy and uncomfortable on it rather than actually when people respond well to stimulant medication, they feel calmer. They feel calmer, they're able to sort of listen, take things on board, reflect, think, maintain focus. If they're interrupted, they can go back to what they're you know, doing and, and keep going. Um, so there's, yeah, so going on another tangent, there is evidence if you get a group of university students and you give them an espresso before they do their, um, their exam, they may actually perform a bit better. Perhaps one in seven might actually get very, very anxious because about one in seven people are very sensitive to caffeine. So, yeah, I think that, that myth is there, I think, and, and ties into that idea that, you know, we all procrastinate, um, you know, we all have difficulty focusing, concentrating, let's all take stimulant medication. Well, the reality is that it wouldn't actually benefit you to the same degree as somebody who has ADHD. Well, that unfortunately brings us to the end of our time. How quickly does it go? As always, please join me in thanking our wonderful... Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.